In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents... Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants your rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny... One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Welcome to the latest edition of the Politically Georgia podcast. I'm your host, Greg Bluestein, and today I'm joined by our AJC Washington correspondent, Tia Mitchell, to talk about all things political in Georgia. Tia, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me on the newly relaunched Politically Georgia podcast. The new and improved version with our producer, Jay Black. Well, it's been a really busy week in Washington. It looks like next week will be even busier. First, let's start with the voting rights bill that was pushed by Senators Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff that reached a vote just a few days ago but failed to survive the threshold to overcome a GOP filibuster. Here's the vice president talking about it. On this vote, the yeas are 49, the nays are 51. Three-fifths of the senators duly chosen and sworn not having voted in the affirmative, the motion is not agreed to. Tia, Democrats are growing increasingly frustrated with that 60-vote threshold they have to pass to pass sort of anything meaningful in the U.S. Senate. And President Biden said on Thursday that he was even open to ending that filibuster so Democrats can, can pass voting rights legislation, can raise the federal debt limit without getting 60 votes. Right. I actually am working on an article right now about the frustration from Democrats and particularly those Democrats who have been most active on voting rights. And they say that they want to see more, not just from Congress, but from President Biden on the issue. I think that's why we heard President Biden Thursday night Mm -hmm. expressing a willingness to consider changing the filibuster before he was much more adamant that he he wouldn't go there. Um, but their base and the base that they need going into 2022 is starting to say, we want more. And even when you talk to rank and file Democratic voters, which may not necessarily be ready to abandon Democrats on this issue, but Voting rights is still the most important issue you hear from, from Democratic voters, particularly Black Democrats. And again, we know Black Democrats create kind of the backbone of Democratic coalitions. Certainly in Georgia. Um, Certainly in Georgia. So. When you talk to black voters, they say this is important. They really believe that everything else, and this is what Reverend Warnock has been saying, everything else that the party wants to do, that Democrats want to accomplish in Washington is built upon the freedom to vote, the right to vote, the ability to to feel that your vote matters. And um, you, his message is resonating, and I don't know if it's... Um, 
you know, the chicken or the egg. I don't know if it's that Democrat Democrats are influencing Warnock's message or Warnock is just so respected that his message is, is what's being taken up by black mm-hmm. voters. But and that's why I think you're going to see Democrats continue to push. I also think that they know that it is embarrassing to Republicans when Democrats bring up bills that are pretty popular, not just among Democrats, but, you know, I think the average person, if you show them the text of the bills or give them an overview, they'll say, okay, I don't see anything wrong with that. So I think Democrats don't mind, even if these votes continue to be blocked by the filibuster, Democrats still say we're putting Republicans on the record as being obstructionist. Now, importantly, this bill had the support of both Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, who have been like the the key votes, right? Uh, They have been uh, holding up certain legislation and, and clearing others through. And of course, nothing can pass in a 50-50 Senate um, and nothing divisive can pass in a 50-50 Senate without their their two votes. Um, tell us about what this bill would have done had it passed. So this bill, so a, a lot of people, we first heard about what was called the For the People Act, which was a very mm-hmm. sweeping and wide ranging elections bill. And in order to get cinema and mansion on board, um, they came out with this new proposal. And the new proposal scales things down a bit, but it still has things like making Election Day a federal holiday so people can be off from work, um, uh, making sure that states have early voting for federal elections, um, some transparency requirements, some It doesn't require independent redistricting, but it does have some federal guidelines for how states um, can do redistricting. And so they're saying that, and again, Mansion and Cinema were on board with this slightly watered down proposal. Um, And so they had a coalition of 50. You, You heard the count was 49. That's because Chuck Schumer changed his vote just for like procedural reasons Mm -hmm. so he can retain control to bring it back up. But you had all 50 on board and you have Democrats saying, look, we worked to try to come up with a deal that was less controversial. Why are no Republicans willing to support it? And what was the Republican objection? I mean, generally, we've heard Republicans say they don't like federalizing elections. They don't like losing state flexibility. Um, Was that the center of their of their opposition? That's exactly it. When you hear Mitch McConnell, and that's the thing that I think is frustrating Democrats. You've heard when I talked to Raphael Warnock about this, he always says, look, Republicans won't even let us debate this bill. We haven't even got to whether it should pass or not. Republicans won't let us debate it, but they're also not coming to the table to say, here's what we like, here's what we don't like, here's what could possibly get us on board. Instead, what you hear from Mitch McConnell is it's a non-starter. We will not create federal election standards. Every state, we have 50 states. They all do elections a little bit different. They all do voter registration a little bit different. They all do, you know, early voting and absentee um the requirements to request an absentee ballot a little bit different. And he says there's nothing wrong with that and we shouldn't at the federal level interfere with that. Now, again, what Democrats say is what Republicans are really trying to do is solidify their control at the state level in states like Georgia, where they have the ability to pass laws that Democrats say 
restrict voting mm-hmm. unnecessarily, make it harder to vote unnecessarily. And that's why Democrats want federal standards, because they say that shouldn't states shouldn't have that ability. But again, what Republicans are saying is Democrats are the ones who want a power grab by doing it at the federal level. And states are fine. Elections are fine, which is interesting because you have Republicans simultaneously saying states are fine. Elections are fine. But some of those same, not all, but some of those same Republicans are also saying Donald Trump was right. The 2020 election was full of mismanagement and fraud. But even those who say the 2020 elections, you know, they're supporting the big lie from Trump. They even aren't necessarily on board with changing the federal laws. So so what recourse do Democrats have now? Because it seems it's increasingly clear that without sort of a filibuster overhaul, that nothing this term can be passed, not only with voting rights, but any other substantial legislation without going through the reconciliation package that the Democrats, the process that Democrats are trying to go through to get their uh, trillion dollar plus social policy changes enacted. Right. And so reconciliation is what Democrats have used to get around the filibuster. But reconciliation, that process can only be used to things tied to money because it's a process tied to the budget. Mm-hmm. And so on something like voting rights or immigration, the parliamentarian has already said you can't put immigration in a reconciliation bill because re- immigration is not a budget issue. And we would we would expect the parliamentarian to say the same thing about voting rights. And so really the only avenue Democrats have at this point, if Republicans continue to say we won't play ball, is to change the filibuster. Now, the question is, if they can come up with some type of rule that can get Manchin and Cinema on board, we see Biden saying he possibly could support it and that may help. But this, again, is about Senate rules. So Biden wouldn't necessarily have a direct hand in changing the filibuster. But right now, Democrats do not even have the 50 votes they would need. Now, to give um, our listeners some background on on how that happens, remember, Republicans created a carve out to the filibuster during the Ob- Um, Obama years, no, I'm sorry, during the Trump years, Republicans created a carve out to the filibuster because Democrats were filibustering so many of Trump's appointees. And so right now, appointees by the president um, can be done by a straight 50-50 vote. Uh, The question is, will Democrats now seize the filibuster for certain things such as voting rights or the or immigration. Or the debt ceiling or, you know, certain budgetary right. processes that they don't want to go through reconciliation to go to, mm-hmm. to use. And uh, and the but the you know, this latest fight on the debt ceiling, Republicans basically told Democrats, put it in the reconciliation bill. And Democrats resisted that. So it's interesting that now that the debt ceiling is going to become an issue again in December, we might very well see that in the reconciliation bill, or like you said, there may just be some carve out of the filibuster. Now, next week is going to be a very busy one because the White House is pushing for votes on uh, final votes on the infrastructure package, on that reconciliation process with the trillion dollar plus social policy spending. And I keep on saying trillion dollar plus because it used to be $3.5 trillion. It looks like it will be substantially cut um, mm-hmm. from that amount because of objections raised by Senators Cinema and Manchin. Um, the Biden administration is making substantial concessions. Uh, Georgia's two senators, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, both supported the more expensive package. Um, where do they stand as it looks like this package will be more limited? 
Yeah, there's. it's been interesting, not just to study Ossoff and Warnock, but, you know, in the House, we've got six Democrats. We've got one, Carolyn Bordeaux, who's more aligned with moderate Democrats who pushed to, you know, go ahead, pass the infrastructure bill, which is $1.2 trillion. It's not that Bordeaux and moderates don't support the mm-hmm. what was the $3.5 trillion social spending and climate change package. That's $3.5 trillion over 10 years. Right now, it's looking like that's being cut down to $1.8 trillion or in that range, again, over, you know, several years time. And, you know, that, as you noted, that process is still ongoing. There are a lot of moving parts. You know, we see Georgia lawmakers say, please don't take out Medicaid expansion in states like Georgia, where Republican leaders have not expanded Medicaid. Um, You see Ossoff and Warnock and other members of our delegation asking for things like transportation, you know, more transit funding that's already in infrastructure, but they want the bigger social spending and climate change package to include even more. There's been discussion about funding for HBCUs and it's all not going to make it in there. And so the question is the infrastructure money would fund things like highways, roads, bridges, transit, public transportation. There is some highway funding that now expires at the end of this month. So, if they don't vote on the infrastructure bill by the end of this month, there will be um, a, a, a lapse in highway surface transportation funding, and therefore there could be some layoffs um, with federal transportation employees. And so that is, again, putting the urgency on passing the infrastructure bill, even if that larger package is not ready to go. Bordeaux and the moderates would be fine with that, but there are progressive Democrats like Hank Johnson, like Nakima Williams, that will be less um, less enthusiastic sure. about passing infrastructure. So the question is, can they at least get a framework of that larger social spending and climate change package, at least a framework agreed to And the people that they want to agree to it are cinema and mansion, because what progressives say they will not stand for is if they pass infrastructure and then the larger package that has things like expanding the child tax credit, paid family leave, um, universal pre-kindergarten, even though that could go, um, expanding Medicaid, um, again, those climate change proposals, which are in flux, Progressives say, if that falls apart, we will not be happy and and we don't want that to fall apart. And that's why they're using infrastructure as kind of their carrots. As the leverage, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it's amazing how much power those two senators, those two more moderate senators have exerted because of the 50-50 dynamic. And because Democrats recognize that, hey, you know, 2023 could be a much different year. They're not looking to expand on their gains in the Senate. Um, they're defending every seat they've got because they've got several vulnerable ones like Senator Warnock up for grabs. And let's take a quick break and we'll talk about that right after we hear from the boss. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. 
Uh, so Tia, let's talk about that Senate race and Herschel Walker's unconventional approach toward challenging Raphael Warnock. Because here's a surprise. He's actually opposing in a certain way the man who egged him on into entering the race. Let, let's listen. Is that the right message? Don't vote if things aren't perfect? That is not the right message. I think everyone got to get out and vote. You know, we can't look at the past. We can't continue to look at the past. And that's what I've tried to tell people. And, you know, President Trump, I'm very honored that he endorsed me because he knows I'm the right man for the job. But he also knows Herschel Walker is going to do it Herschel Walker's way. This is from the Brian Kilmeade Show on Fox News Radio. He's also talking about looking forward when it comes to the election, the, well, the lies about election fraud. Do you think this election law has straightened things out in Georgia? The one just passed that caused the Major League Baseball to pick up and decide to play their All-Star game in Colorado? Well, you know, one of the things the uh, governor has done, he's done, uh, you know, a couple of things to make things a little bit better with the drop boxes and uh, some of the other things that he's done. And, you know, there's no doubt we got to do other things to make it even better. But right now, we cannot, cannot continue to look back. You know, we got to go forward. And that's what I'm trying to do. And that, that means we got to stay vigilant. We cannot look back. We've got to look, look forward. I mean, that is something we hear more from Jeff Duncan, from Brad Raffensperger, than we do from pro-Trump politicians um, who, who, who are being endorsed by, by the former president. But that's the Herschel Walker approach so far. And it really, I'll, I'll say, it surprised me, especially when I first heard his, his first campaign rally, uh, his first campaign speech back in September at the rally down in Perry, when instead of the red meat that I expected Herschel Walker uh, to kind of dole out to the conservative crowd, he talked about talking to Democrats and and working across party aisles and understanding uh, people with different viewpoints. And and yes, he said um, some some you know he's, he's he's embraced some conservative policies, but he's given very little details about the views he holds. And instead, I've seen that he's been more likely to talk about you know what we just heard about about working across party aisles, about moving on from the 2020 election than he has then into playing into Donald Trump's lies. It's been really, really surprising to me. Yeah, I, I agree. It's so surprising. I think it's the smart move, but it's also a risky move. You know, Herschel Walker knows he can't win. Well, it would be very difficult in this race to beat Raphael Warnock with a message that makes him just a black version of Donald Trump. I just think it would be mm -hmm. very difficult to build a, a winning coalition statewide, um, you know, because he's going to need people in the middle. He's going to need, you know, to win over people who right now are pretty happy with Raphael Warnock. And I don't think you can do that if, particularly if you're supporting the big lie and saying, matter of fact, your vote may not count. And so it's very smart for him to pivot and create some distance from Donald Trump, because, um, as you know, people in the middle say Donald Trump is not the way. And there are even some Republicans, you know, who are disaffected by the way that they see their party going. That being said, the risk is if he if Donald Trump decides that Herschel Walker has betrayed him. Donald Trump could turn on Herschel Walker. And I'm not saying it will happen um, because Donald Trump also wants to win and Herschel Walker is polling very well. And I think Donald and Herschel have a personal relationship that 
um, goes outside of just politics. And so, but there's still that risk, you know, Donald Trump is liable to send an email at any time saying things that aren't always rooted in reality. (laughs) And he's also likely to send an email at any time kind of blasting former allies. And so the question is, you know, internally is, is Herschel Walker, you know, does he have Donald Trump's blessing to create this distance? And if he doesn't, is it leading to tension or friction? And then again, even if there is tension or friction, is it to the level where Donald Trump would become critical of Herschel Walker? Again, we don't know if any of these things are happening, but that's a risk because Donald Trump is so unpredictable. Now, if David Perdue or Kelly Leffler had ever said those things that we just heard Herschel Walker said, it would have been a completely different story, right? We would we would start seeing tweets from Donald Trump almost immediately saying, questioning their loyalty. He even questioned their loyalty in the throes of the runoff when they were doing everything possible that he wanted them to do. But this is a different story with Herschel Walker. First off, he has a very long-standing relationship with the former president that goes back to the 1980s. They have a friendship. Um, Herschel Walker used to babysit Donald Trump's children. They go very far back. So he has that 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 personal relationship that he might not have had. He certainly didn't have with Kelly Leffler going way back and didn't necessarily have with, with, with David Perdue, uh, them being, uh, you know, uh, more recent allies. But secondly, too, Herschel Walker has the name recognition and he's got the money t- to be able to afford to take these these positions because with combined with Donald Trump's endorsement, the all the fundraising he's already done, uh, he raised about a hundred thousand dollars a day after getting into the to the race in August, um, and high high name recognition and poll numbers. He doesn't he can he can afford to look beyond the primary and look to the general election. And as you mentioned, the danger is not just in with with Trump getting upset by this, but also of course he still faces Republican rivals, including Latham Sadler and Agriculture Commissioner Gary Black, who in the latter particular being aggressive about basically saying that that Herschel Walker is running a, a Biden in the basement campaign, that he's avoiding taking stances on issues ranging from guns to tax policy to immigration because he doesn't want the base to be riled up by his stances. And and I, for one, was kind of surprised because I wrote a story a couple of days ago about his immigration stance. Back in 2015, Herschel Walker had endorsed a, a pathway to citizenship, something that Republicans have derided as amnesty for people in the country illegally. And when I asked him what his stance is now, his spokesman said, basically stood by that remark, did not disavow those 2015 remarks. So he's taking a a very moderate stance. I guess that's one word for it, right? Um, On immigration. Uh, We don't know where he stands on so many other issues because he's already looking beyond the, the primary to the general election. Right. And again, I think that's smart, but that's still risky. Um, I think it's smart because the polling shows it doesn't really matter to um, Republican voters. He is the clear front runner and he didn't have to like put his stake in the sand about where he Mm -hmm. stands. And so why risk it? You know, why, 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 why would he put himself out there and actually have policies and platforms for people to discuss, you know, and because voters, 
thus far have shown they don't care. Republican voters thus far have shown they don't care. Um, it's risky because that is going to make him really vulnerable. We know that Raphael Warnock is a great campaigner. And we know that Raphael Warnock um, does is a great speaker. Um, you know, his roots as a pastor, his roots as an activist. And so if Herschel Walker becomes the Republican nominee, and right now there's nothing indicating he won't be, you know, that I think is going to be a vulnerability that people don't know where he stands. And you can just see the ad saying, do you want to elect a senator who won't even tell you where he stands on the basic issues? Um, do you think that'll change is my question to you, Greg. Do you think, you know, during the primary season, Herschel Walker's team is going to put out a basic platform or do you think they're going to continue kind of what they're doing now? I mean, they don't need to change that. You know, we in the media can complain and we have very loudly and written blog items and stories about his 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 media approach, right? Um, he has not done interviews with us or with other major um, Metro Atlanta or national outlets that don't have a, a point of view, right? He's gone to the friendly confines of conservative media or talked to, you know, very local um, radio stations and, and outlets. Um, but we, what we haven't had a chance to do yet is sit down with him and, and go over his stances on nuanced policy discussions that, that do end up coming up majorly in Republican debates, right? I mean, I've seen elections turn on whether or not uh, Republicans support religious liberty in, in state races or guns or, you know, to the extent they want to expand gun rights or um, lower taxes and all these, all these major issues that, that are crucial to the Republican primary voter. But in this case, you know, Georgia has never seen or has it's been years since we've seen a, a celebrity. And I don't think I've ever seen a celebrity of this high stature in terms of the sports world run for this office before. That, that is able already in the polling, at least, has been able to overcome the fact that he uh, moved here from Texas just a few weeks ago, uh, where he, he, Herschel Walker has lived in Texas for decades, that he has a, a past history that we've reported on extensively of violent and erratic behavior when it comes to, especially when it comes to women, um, that he has a history of mental illness that he's acknowledged, um, but is still, uh, you know, still something that will come up in a general election debate. And that he has distanced himself from, from Republican politics in the past to the point where he hasn't voted in Republican primaries over years. These are all things that used to be sort of death knells to candidates. But with Trump's support and with his high name rec recognition, those two things combined put him on this footing. And I'll, I'll read you this quote from Leo Smith. He's the former, former minority engagement director of the Georgia GOP. He said, Herschel is in this enviable position where he doesn't have to worry about winning the base. And he might be one of the only candidates who has a strong enough bond with Trump that he can get away with it. So right now I'm talking to a lot of you know mainstream Republicans who are actually really, really enthusiastic about Herschel Walker because he's not towing that party line. At the same time, he's got all these Trump supporters because of Donald Trump's endorsement. So it's this really interesting paradox <laughs> that he's that he's sort of uh, uh, navigating right now. He's got the Trump backers, and he's also uh, encouraging some of the uh, never Trump wing of the Republican Party in Georgia because he's not, because he's telling the president. And I've quoted him in one of my stories saying that he told the president, hey, I respect you, but this is Herschel Walker's race. I'm running the race like I want to, not like you want me to. Right. And I think it's just, I, I do think it's worth pointing out that 
the dynamics in the Republican Party make this so. And, you know, we've got a candidate who is a front runner based on partially based on his celebrity, but based more so on Donald Trump's stamp of approval. And it's not about what he says or what he does. Um, His own kind of, you know, bad behavior and baggage is not weighing him down because he has Donald Trump's stamp of approval. And the question is, can that take him all the way? And it looks like it can, but what, again, does that say about the Republican Party? And I know people like Jeff Duncan are saying they want the Republican Party to pivot away from the age of Donald Trump. But if the Senate candidate, and you know, Herschel Walker can win the general election, um, if he wins based largely on having the backing of Donald Trump, especially if he wins without running a more traditional campaign, that's going to tell us a lot about how Trump continues to have more than just influence. We're talking about control of the Republican Party, particularly in Georgia. Yeah. And for another kind of glimpse at that, uh, we wrote a story a few days ago about how pro-Trump supporters have flooded the machinery, have taken control of the local level machinery of of county level GOPs, um, even the last few months, you know, e- even ousting pro-Trump uh, chairman and pro-Trump executives who are already, you know, very, very loyal to the president, um, but just weren't loyal enough to some of his other supporters. So they've come in and taken over counties like Cobb County GOP, um, other counties, Forsyth County, Cherokee County, other counties all over Georgia, at least a dozen. So it's really fascinating to see what's happening on the ground level of the GOP. And of course, Democrats are sitting back with their popcorn and enjoying the show in a way. Absolutely. And I mean, and Democrats also, you know, they've got to make sure that they're supporting their candidate, which kind of brings us full circle to what we started talking about, which is that frustration from some activists. And, you know, if Herschel Walker is the nominee and continues down this path of not saying anything on the campaign trail that can really be picked apart, you know, saying things quite frankly, that other than his allegiance to Trump, most people are going to say, Oh, he doesn't sound bad at all. You know, Democrats are going to need their own machine to rev up. um, If, if Raphael Warnock is going to defend his seat. And that's why it's so important that, they don't lose their base or lose enthusiasm by inaction in Washington. Perfect. Um, well, Tia, that's all the time we have for this week of the show. Thank you, Tia, for joining us and to Jay for producing this podcast. Subscribe, share, and review our podcast so we can continue to bring you this content for free each week. And of course, to our listeners, thank you so much for joining us and listening. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. I'm Ernie Suggs, race and culture reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And I'm Ned Ravone, lifestyle columnist. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. 
I've been living here for 24 years and I am still amazed at how rich the city's black culture continues to grow. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. Like historically Black colleges and universities. Atlanta's thriving art scene. And the city's growing neighborhoods. Wherever you live, we want to hear from you. We want to hear what issues are important to you. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. Only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Constitution.